Hello everyone and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben and today Dalhart and I have the pleasure to catch up with Kenneth L. Woodward. Kenneth served as religion editor of Newsweek for 38 years, during which he reported on a wide variety of subjects from seven continents. In addition to some 100 cover stories and 700 other articles for Newsweek, he's published essays, articles and book reviews in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Commonweal and First Things, among many other publications. Among his awards are the National Magazine Award, the Pulitzer Prize of the magazine industry and the Robert E. Griffin Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Art of Writing from the University of Notre Dame, his alma mater. He holds five honorary degrees. Ken is the author of four books, including his recently published Getting Religion, Faith, Culture and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Ascent of Trump, which Penguin brought out in second edition in 2017. He's lectured at some 70 colleges and universities in the US and Europe. He's been a fellow of the National Humanities Centre and a Regents Lecturer in Religion at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He currently serves as Writer-in-Residence at the Lumen Christi Institute at the University of Chicago. Ken, welcome and thanks for your time. My pleasure. Yes, Ken, great to be with you. Thanks for being with us. And, um, you know, I guess I shouldn't make this too personal, but I, I really am a big admirer of your work in part because you strike me as a contrarian and a provocateur, and those are things in short supply. Um, so I wanted to start off by just talking to you, asking you, uh, your your book, Getting Religion, is in part autobiographical, um, which I, I find to be very useful because you lived and grew up um, pre-Vatican II, pre-JFK. Um, and I'm curious how much – the Catholic experience in America, do you think, has changed since the '60s? Um, I, and and is it? I've I've written a book about that. We're not here to talk about my book, but it does seem to me the changes on paper, in many respects, are significant. But I wonder what it's been like for you to experience it, but then also to write about it, which you've done a fair amount. Well. Um... Let me put it this way. I, 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 I came to Newsweek at the tail end of Vatican II, and uh, uh, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to it. I had three children. Uh, I was a civil rights reporter in Omaha, Nebraska, where, uh, where your pal uh, uh, L. Brent Bozell came from. Um, and sorry about that. Uh, and so... Um, and I should say I was hired because I was a Catholic, because time was beating the pants off of Newsweek. Um, they had a, a fellow Notre Dame graduate five years older than me uh, writing the religion department. In any case, um, I really hadn't paid a lot of attention to it. The biggest change really was liturgical. Huh. That's where most people didn't follow the council. I mean, the people that read Commonweal in America and that sort of thing followed it. But um but basically, uh, when they went to church on Sunday and heard a mighty fortress is our God, they knew something was very strange. Um, and uh, yes, the Protestants gave us uh, their worst hymns and kept the best for themselves. That was my impression. So the first uh, change was liturgical uh, and musical. I mean, we threw out our whole heritage of Gregorian chant almost overnight. Huh. Um, it couldn't. The council happened at the worst possible time for a variety of reasons. One of which, the rise of the 
ukulele and the guitar, okay? And so we got guitar masses. And in this respect, William F. Buckley Jr. and I were joined at the hip because we had been raised on Latin. And I, I could still sing the Latin hymns in the shower and occasionally on Sunday. Uh, but that was the biggest shock and change. Yeah. Uh, the second was um, no more meat on Friday. Um, I described in my book, and we can talk, we should talk about this, that, uh, that uh, growing up Catholic the way I did and where I did in a, in a um, upper middle class suburb, um, we were, um, how would I put it? We were separated from the rest of the culture, you folks, um, by a membrane, not a wall. Um, I have a very good friend of mine who grew up in Oak Park, very Catholic uh, suburb of Chicago, close in. And he didn't like that at all. He said, no, it was a wall. I said, well, huh. did you date ca- non-Catholic girls? And I, he said, no. I said, well, there's the difference. I did. <laughs> um, now, that, I, I don't mean that frivolously. I mean, um, um, the parochial school system was the agency through which some of the world was left out, but the rest of it could come in. So it was a controlled assimilation that took place. Anyhow, back to the liturgy. So, um, yeah, I think those were the big changes. Uh, meet on Friday. Uh, we had been doing this. This is one of the sociological markers of Catholics. We didn't eat meat on Friday. Right. And all of a sudden, what was a minor league sin uh, was no longer even minor league. Um, good fences make good neighbors. Um, uh, uh, communities, uh, social entities need uh, differentiation. And that was very dizzying for an awful lot of Catholics. Well, since we're talking about nationalism in this podcast more generally, and we're not going to have to worry about definitions, but... <clears throat> I mean, you were alive and cognizant when uh, Paul Blanchard's book, American uh, Freedom and Catholic Power, I believe that's the title of it. Right. Which was whether people read it or whether it was more like a book that people purchased the way Alan Bloom's book on higher education was in the 1980s, often cited more than read. Um, but I wonder how palpable you experienced anti-Catholicism and, and the degree to which that affected your, your own outlook on being American. Um, and I answered not at all. Um, um, why? Well, first of all, if I lived in an Irish or Italian or Polish, um, ghetto, would you might say community, um, that would have been distant stuff. All our friends would have been, in fact, the Irish and the Italians, although I'm both, um, were often at each other's throats. Uh, people don't realize that the, the intra-Catholic um, rivalries and sometimes an- animosities based on ethnicity. And um, you have in your book um, the kind of separate, well, what the German Catholics suffered, and Germans in general, German-Americans, um, you know, during World War II um, and even World War I. Um, 
But no, I didn't um, uh, at all. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was Catholic smugness huh. uh, because, um, again, to speak autobiographically, uh, one of the biggest um, moments in my life is when I was accepted to St. Ignatius the Jesuit High School in Cleveland. The rest of my life depended on that. People think that's college for us. It was high school. Huh. And uh, we were, I mean, we were privileged people, even though it was in a poor neighborhood and there was no place to, you know, to exercise outside because it was all of cinders. Um, you were known around the city if you went to Ignatius. Um, I remember one time very briefly uh, going to Moscow and, and uh, during um, uh, the Gorbachev's time and uh, I, I walked into a restaurant and they seated me and then they brought another couple in because you couldn't sit alone. There wasn't that much food either. And uh, the fellow said to me, uh, uh, he said, do you speak English? I said, yes. Uh, he said, uh, I said, uh, where are you from? And he said, Washington. I said, no, you're from Cleveland. And he said, how do you know? I said, I can tell by your voice. Um, <laughs> I, I said, uh, 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 east side or west side? Um, I'm telling you this for a reason. He said, east I said, wrong side. Uh, I said, what high school? And he said, uh, St. Somebody or other. And I said, wrong high school. He said, you SOB, you went to Ignatius, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> when you grow up with a sense of privilege, okay, which happens today in my high school and a lot of other Jesuit high schools, you don't miss anything else on the outside at all, okay? So and as long as you can have, include um, non-Catholic girls in your dating, uh, you, you got the world. So, no, I never experienced really any of that. And the second thing I want to mention is that when I went to Notre Dame and studied English, um, you know, we were reading uh, Neo Thomas. We, we read Maritain, especially his uh, creative intuition in art and poetry. Um, it was the age of Eliot. Need I tell you more? We'll go through all of that. Very Catholic and Anglo-Catholic. Um, so there was no gap there. If we went on to uh, Columbia or Yale uh, or any of those places, they were. It was that period, or the University of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, they were in sync with what we were learning. That's how unusual a moment was. You didn't. You didn't step out and wonder how am I going to operate in this outside world. The outside world intellectually in my little world was already receptive to what we had learned at Notre Dame. Just out of curiosity, uh, parenthetically, were you reading any Flannery O'Connor back then in school? Um, I saw Flannery O'Connor when she came to Notre Dame and gave that great speech, uh, Mystery and Manners. I quoted, okay. it, I quoted it in Newsweek yeah. magazine, as a matter of fact. Um, no, I, I stole it from her. Uh, yeah, we did, um, but we really read, um, uh, we had a thing called modern, there was a great professor there named Frank O'Malley, okay? And if you were an O'Malley student, you were an O'Malley student for life. He said to, to us, uh, I asked him one time why I should major in English, and he said, Mr. Woodward, an English, to major in English is a way of life. And he handed you a, a reading list of 350 books, and he was gulped, and he said, yes, for life. So who was on there? Léon Bois, the, the, the strange French writer who was so uh, important in, in um, Jacques and Maritain's um, uh, conversion. Um, Dostoevsky, he baptized a lot of people who weren't strictly speaking Catholic. Um, how many... <laughs> 
undergraduate papers on on the Grand Inquisitor scene he got, I don't know. I wrote on Scott Fitzgerald because I was in love with college girls. And uh, he said to me, uh, well, that's all very nice, you see, Mr. Woodward, but... Um, but I ended up being his sort of unofficial biographer. There is a wonderful book on him, but uh, writing about him in Newsweek 16 years after he was dead and people like Martin Marty wrote in and said, oh my God, uh, how many, how, we all had at least one of those teachers. So yeah, yeah. we talk about influence and, and no, it was a, it was a, um, it was a wonderful time to, to, to be, to be Catholic. And, uh, and I must add that, that the Jesuits, and I have to insist on this. The Jesuits taught us to go out into the world, you know. Um, one told me, you're going to be a lawyer for Christ. Well, I went all the way to University of Law School uh, uh, at Michigan, University of Michigan Law School, before I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer at all, much less well, how much do you get paid being a lawyer for Christ? But um, it was a very um, upbeat time. And that yeah. was for the council, uh, Daryl. And... Uh, and so when the council said, well, you know, it's going to be the age of the lady, I said, well, hell, it's always <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I just, even the council didn't, the council moved me in one way, the biblical stuff and how Protestant biblical scholars and Catholic biblical scholars had worked together. Cardinal Bay having my dear, dear friend, the Jewish friend and mentor, um, uh, Abraham Heschel over uh, to talk about, you know, the, the uh, document on, on uh, Jews and, 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 and non, other non-Christians. Um, so the council was a heady, heady um, uh, topping for, for what was already um, delicious ice cream sundaes. So, and then it collapsed. So with what you said there about what a great time it was to be a Catholic in the 50s, yeah. which I think comes across in variety of ways um, in the material I've read, but so was it a surprise to you? <clears throat> and I'll let Crawford get a question in the next sure. next time. But was it a surprise to you the opposition to Kennedy? I mean, not as much as you can remember your experience of that anti-Catholicism that Kennedy faced. I mean, now it probably looks different in hindsight, but was it a surprise that it came out then or were you even much aware of it? I wasn't much aware of it, to be honest with you. Frank O'Malley was uh, head of the Democratic ward among the faculty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I have to tell you, he never asked, you're never allowed to ask questions in the class. It was too important for him to lecture. But he had his informal colloquia at whatever bar he was at at night, and you approached him then. He would often dart like Superman out of a... Um, out of a phone booth where he was doing Democratic ward material. And then you would sit and talk about, um, you know, Maritain or Gilson or whatever. Um, so uh, uh, I suppose that that he more than anybody else inclined my, my, uh, my um, you know, identifying as a Democrat. And uh, Adley Stevenson ran and he came and we saw him. Um, huh. Kennedy, I, um, you know, he was one of us and this was after I was out of school, of course, but, um, handsome, it, it was more generation. Eisenhower is an old man, you know, and here's Kennedy. Um, 
And uh, it, I, we identified with him. I didn't, we knew being Catholic in certain towns or certain states was difficult for him. Huh. But again, I was, I was a very young uh, newspaper man at that point. And uh, um, uh, I, I, no, I, I didn't uh, uh, see it uphill, but I, I must tell you one delicious story that Lou Harris, who was the pollster for Kennedy, right. okay, one of the great moments in the Kennedy campaign came when he went out to West Virginia. If he could win there, he could win everywhere. They figure Humphrey had it. And they went out there, and I mean, it was, who is this Catholic Northeasterner with the Boston accent? And what Lou Harris did, he said, what turned it around for Kennedy is we decided not to show any pictures of him, but we, we got, we ran an ad in every newspaper in West Virginia. Um, you know, not a state with a lot of newspapers, but whatever was there, they ran. And all they showed was Kennedy's manicured hand on a Bible. That's all. <laughs> and they won it. So, um, no, I guess I, look, there's a story behind every question you ask me. I'm sorry, but no, that, no, no uh, these we, are great stories. No, we didn't. I didn't, didn't feel that at, at all. Well, as you were coming to terms with this, Ken, what was your sense of the big religious other that Catholics had to face up to? And how important was evangelicalism within that sphere? I'm sorry, when I was growing up? Yeah, as, as you were... When I was growing up, there, <clears throat> there was no such word as evangelical. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Billy Graham uh, was just conjuring that into view. Um well, he was really a fundamentalist, um, and, but a mild fundamentalist. Um, and those folks weren't around us at all. They didn't make it to the suburbs. Um, just like the so-called white evangelical vote uh, today, uh, it's a totally different social class, uh, different places. Um, a friend of mine who is a Baptist from the South visited me just the, uh, the other day, an archivist, and he said, uh, we were walking down the street. He said, what if I had my Trump cap on? What would people say? I said, they wouldn't say anything. They just pray for you. And um, that's what we did for the Protestants in those days. We prayed for them. Um, my father was saved by Billy Sunday when he was 16 years old in Youngstown, Ohio. Wow. Right during the wobbly strikes, which made him anti-labor uh, anti, um, uh, all his life. Um, certainly a Republican. Um, born in the last, uh, right after Hemingway, born in the last uh, year of the, of the 19th century and was a 19th century only child, um, had to agree to uh, raise his children Catholic where it, when he married my mother and, um, and did. And uh, when my sister wanted to go to a, a public high school uh, after grade school, he said he reminded her of the promises he made. So, um, yeah, they um, they were very much the other. Um, I remember coming out of high school, and I used to go downtown Cleveland, and there'd have these uh, cornerstone preachers. They probably were evangel evangelistic, at least. And I'd argue with them. You know, it was sort of fun. Um, um, it helps to define yourself over against other people. So, again, back to the council, it was the fraternalness that I observed among the observers and the theologians, um, Robert McAfee Brown, all the rest of them, 
that was more important for me than anything else. But growing up, you didn't go into a Catholic church. I mean, a non-Catholic church. I mean, you just didn't. It was sort of wrong. So um, those boundaries uh, helped in a way. And I think because they were boundaries and when they came down, it meant more to you. Um, So, yeah. Um, But we played together. We went to camp together. I mean, I went to a a YMCA camp and we sang the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. What the hell? Who Ken, you, you wrote that really important story in 1976 in Newsweek, didn't you, on, on the rise of evangelicals as a political force uh, in the United States. How much of that was a journey of discovery for you, and how much of that were you simply reflecting what was out there? Well, um, Jimmy Carter came along. Uh, as I say in my book and in, and in the Commonweal piece, um, the, the white evangelical vote was a creation of pollsters to um, find an envelope in which they could put the people, uh, many from the South, who voted for Carter. So the Newsweek people most of whom, very few of whom were Catholic. See, it's great being practically the only Catholic in, a, in an institution like that. What you say is true because nobody can, can, can deny you. Um, he, uh, um, they, they, we did a cover story on Miss Lillian. We did a, uh, his mother. We did a cover story on Billy, the beer drinking guy. I wrote a cover story on Ruth, Sister Ruth, um, uh, who was a female evangelist when you couldn't be one, et cetera. We were totally fascinated by this guy. So that's the first thing you have to know. And then, you know, um, they found out that he talked about being born again. And he knew this would be, he wanted the Southerners to know because they hadn't elected a, um, a Democrat. I mean, they hadn't voted for a Democrat in five elections. So he wanted the Southerners to know he was one of them. But he, uh, but he would lucked out because Chuck Colson wrote his book called Born Again at that time. And that was a, a bestseller. And so uh, I think as I talked about, there was a wonderful stripper named Candy Barr who became born again. And uh, a black leader, Cleaver, uh, uh, became born again. And so everybody's talking about what the hell does it mean to be born again? And uh, so he rode a wave there, if you will. Um, and when we call that the year of the evangelical, which is what we did, um, Chuck Colson, all six foot two of him, um, barged into my small office at Newsweek and to thank me and um, told me that this was God's answer to Times Is God Dead cover 10 years earlier. Now, he actually believed that. So um, remember, these people did not were not involved in party politics. They voted. And they had been disenfranchised by the civil rights uh, legislation of, uh, of Lyndon Johnson. So um, it is important to remember the religious right was politicized by operatives of the Republican Party. Two Catholics and a Jew created the moral majority, not, not Jerry Falwell. That I didn't know uh, at the time, however. I, it's only afterwards. 
So one of the themes of your um, of your book interviews I've heard you do, and also the Commonweal piece was is the importance of um, institutions and social networks, and and it's it strikes me that, and you make the observation in the Commonweal piece that evangelical Protestantism being so decentralized, as it were, so lacking in a, a kind of a core or centralized institutional life, which has been the case for a long time, um, that it's harder to motivate uh, that for political ends in some ways. Um, but Roman Catholics, sorry, uh, have have a still a pretty vigorous institutional life. And so I wonder if that experience or those institutions still shape Catholic politics, if you can talk about, or at least Catholic politicians in some way, if that, if, if that institutional life still has some kind of hold on either voters, politicians, or even uh, Supreme Court nominees. Well, I'd like to think the church has a hold on them. Um, I once wrote a cover story on uh, American Catholics. We, we were the first to, to create a survey of, of, of uh, and survey Catholics and ask them what they thought about their church. And we ended the piece, I ended the piece uh, uh, with a quote from Eudora Welty, the Southern writer who was Catholic, I didn't know. She said, she was in her 90s, she said, um, she said, uh, the Catholic Church is my home. It's the only home I ever really had. Hmm. Uh, given my uh, long years, it's the way I feel too. Um, do younger generations? Um, no, not so much. Um, they're basically raised by the outside culture. Evangelical kids too, Mormon kids too. The culture invades their life in a way that it didn't invade mine. And so the institution and the experiences in it, um, the communalism that is Catholicism, you know, um, is, um, is, um, is a very different experience than the typical Protestant experience. Um, although Catholics talk about um, creating community, Protestants actually do it because they have to create a, uh, in a congregation, Catholics typically ran walk-in drive-in churches where you lived is where you went to church. Um, uh, and the school usually formed the community. Protestant um, uh, congregations, as I say, um, gather the like-minded or the preacher's a good preacher or whatever, but they have to create something that isn't there. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Um, I, I do worry. Now, the young people, they don't experience it in the same way. Um, the failure to pass on the tradition, which was evident in mainline Protestantism uh, as early as the late 60s, um, the activism uh, uh, alienating an awful lot of the conservatives in the pew and all that sort of thing that I write about, um, has come now to, <clears throat> excuse me, to Catholicism. Um, so young Catholics, it's not Americanism. They're just raised by the culture. Mm. Um, the, the, and the division uh, between liberal and conservative broadly conceived um, 
cuts right through the church. As I said in the Commonweal piece, and we're going to have a conference on this, um, it's politics that shapes religion. Religion doesn't shape politics. Um, I also say in there, because I've been a good friend of John Green, a sociologist all these years, and I, uh, because of he and, and, uh, and uh, um, the rest of those, good, uh, those guys, a gang of four, really redrew the map of American religion and, and refined it. Um, he says that about 17% of Americans are seriously religious, and that's belief, behavior, and belonging. And belonging is important because there are networks where you're influenced by other people. Um, so uh, if it's only 17%, it, it seems to me uh, further evidence that um, religion is not a factor uh, in our politics. We may think it is. We may say, I'm voting for so-and-so because of my religious beliefs, but that's not really it. It's really everything, you know, everything but. So um, the weakening of institutions, and this is the conservative side. They're the ones who are much more interested in it. David Brooks recently had a piece about the obvious, it often happens with David, although I like him a lot, um, which was our our life together. He was talking about Putnam's latest, we're not, you know, bowling alone guy. Um, we're not, we're, we're not connected that way. The very th- medium that you and I are using is, is, is a, a different kind of connection, but it's not the, it's not the face-to-face connection. Um, so, um, the decline of institutional life and life together and the compromises that go with it are obvious, is, is obviously lacking and you can see it in our politics. Right. Well, can I just, can I just uh, ask you to, to expand on that a little bit, Ken? I mean, I'm really interested in this idea of lowering or, or, or declining religious commitment, especially in American Catholic youth. So uh, as you look at the political landscape today, who best represents the future of what we might call Catholic politics? Is it Biden or is it Amy Coney Barrett? Ha! Um, Biden. Biden with his rosary beads in his pocket, huh? I mean, is it is it a talisman? Is it the kind of worry beads that the um, Pakistani taxi drivers in New York have hanging on their rearview mirror? Uh, what are we talking about here? Um, look, what we know is... The Democratic Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of, um, or became a wholly owned subsidiary of the of the feminist movement at a certain point. Um, if you look at uh, the strategy of Gloria Steinem, um, and they will not support any candidate who can, uh, who is pro life. They simply have ruled it out. Um, the Democratic Party changed in 1972 when they basically turned their backs on blue collar workers. Um, and their uh, leaders, the, the union leaders, uh, George Meany. Um, this was done in the party restructuring. In my mind, the Democratic Party that existed with uh, with uh, F- FDR's coalition through Kennedy and Johnson disappeared then. Mm. We have the documents. They went after a different group of people. Um, if Catholics wanted to, like Biden wanted to make it, or, or Dick Durbin, of uh, my senator here in Chicago, they have to toe the line, or they won't be given any money, they won't be given any support. And um, that's how badly the abortion issue uh, has affected our uh, our politics, as well as our 
nominations for the um, for the Supreme Court. My dream, I would keep thinking of writing an essay, but I doubt if anybody would publish it. What would happen if the Democrats said we are not going to be controlled to the extent that we are by the abortion uh, lobby? And the Republicans said we are not going to be controlled uh, as we are by the gun lobby. Both kill. And um, uh, I think an awful lot of our polarization would disappear. Hmm. Um, and then in, in my essay, I, I should add, um, I, I buy into the political scientists who are saying that um, the polarization is so bad that we line up. If I, if, I, if I say to somebody here in the North, uh, oh, I've got a friend who's an evangelical and a, and a Republican, they're going to think sleazy, not well-educated, um, blue, they're going to, a whole series of stereotypes. What the political scientists are saying uh, is that this is a mega identity controlled by politics so that every negative thing that you can think about is what these people are. And it works both ways, obviously. Um, I've had, uh, and I talk about that in my essay, there are people who say I could never marry a Republican or I could never marry a liberal or whatever the case may be. Everything that they don't like is those people. So are, are you surprised, Ken, that, that Biden is the Democratic ticket holder this time around? No, no, no. I, I was hoping he would because he was the, he was the most moderate. Because, because uh, I mean, if you want by look, D Trump is a threat. There's just absolutely no way. This, the whole um, presidential election is about Trump. It's about it's nothing else. He makes it about himself because that's the only audience he has uh, is himself, I mean, since, I mean, it's the only subject. So it really is that. It's not about any other issues. And um, and so Biden is the, the mildest of them. He's been around. He's avuncular. Um, I've had people tell me, well, you see, they're, you know, he's going to appeal to Catholics. I doubt it. John Kerry was an aristocrat and carried himself as one. He was Catholic. Catholics didn't vote for him. He lost the Catholic vote. Um, so, I, again, I don't think that's an issue. It might be an issue in parts of Pennsylvania or parts of Michigan. On the mi micro level, it can be um, significant. But once um, uh, Kennedy was elected, um, it, that ceased. Fellow Catholicism um, ceased to be much of a factor. Um, and I don't think it will be today. Um, and um, and if you want to explain, I mean, here's the thing. Evangelical, so-called, all right, um, voted for Trump, but so did the majority of, of, of liberal Protestants, so do, or mainline Protestants, so do the majority of Catholics. I remember when Jerry Falwell said, you know, we put Reagan in the White House. Um, no, he didn't. He won majorities in all those categories. So we have to be really careful here. Um, there's a famous uh, sociologist, Robert Wuthnow, at Princeton University. And you should read his book, 2015, um, um, uh, Inventing American Religion. It's about how unreliable polls are. And I don't, after you read it, you'll, you'll never take one seriously again. Right. Um, so I think we have to be careful. It, that's a shorthand we shouldn't be using, a lot of those percentages. Um, 
so speaking of the polarization on guns and abortion, mm-hmm. um, are, I guess, are you surprised? And I am um, in by implication suggesting I am that um, Biden's Catholic identity, which does receive positive reporting at certain places that he's a man of faith, et cetera, um, that he doesn't have to answer anything about abortion, which is church teaching. And, and, and it goes back to one of your pieces at first things about Mario Cuomo, whether that ever achieved any kind of resolution, what Catholic politicians were permitted to say or hold. And if Biden is sort of water skiing in the wake of all that, if that makes any sense. Let me say this. What I call the the, um, Cuomo heresy is the following. Here's what he did. Slick. He was lawyerly. People who covered him learned to hate him very quickly because he had a bad temper. I got (laughs) along with him because he wanted to get along with me. Um, It's this. Cuomo said, the bishops of my church teach that abortion is wrong. And I, because I'm a Catholic, I accept their teaching, okay? But as governor, I can't impose my religious views or the views of my church on other people. My answer to that was to Mario, several answers to Mario, but one of them was abortion is not a religious issue. It's a moral issue. Why do I make that distinction? Because I brought it up to him. I I said, but look, you impose your views on the voters of New York on capital punishment. Bishop hadn't spoken on that subject at that point. And I said, but the polls show that most New Yorkers want capital punishment. You're against it. I said, what's the difference? Oh, that's a moral issue. Abortion is a religious issue. That was his argument. So I say, no, it's a moral issue. And it's a civil rights issue. And it's a human rights issue. If you think that, as I do, that we ought to include the unborn into the circle of of, um, what we call, you know, uh, human. And and we should protect that life. Okay. Um, But I don't have to be Catholic. Right. or evangelical, or even religious, to hold that view. Well, why do most Catholics do? Because they have an affinity group called the church that teaches it. And your con- local congregation, if you're an evangelical or mainline Protestant, Lutheran, whatever, uh, may. may. And if they don't, if they're, if they're you, you probably will move to another congregation. If your affinity group is your feminist um uh, consciousness raising group for whom abortion a ch- a choice on abortion it is absolutely essential chances are you're you're pro-choice um, we all have our affinity group so uh, but strictly speaking it isn't it's a it's a moral teaching and when Cuomo got up impassioned uh, oh I forgot what it was maybe it was the uh, second Clinton um, race um, he he threw all his rhetorical passion into the fact that that Democrats are choice people, okay? So where did his moral values lie? Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think if we, we get rid of the religion idea um, uh, and to say, well, that's the reason why I'm thinking of writing about something uh, uh, about that in connection with the Supreme Court uh, uh, nominee. But anyhow, um, that distinction, it seems to me, is really important because it allows people to say, and they have said, um, I'm not going to impose my religious views. Right, right. But you are going to run on your moral views, aren't you? So let's let's cut the semantics. Right. Well, I, I've got one last question. We've kept you for a while here. Um, but it, it's uh, – I don't know how much you followed it. I don't, I don't know that I've seen it in your writing or um, in the interviews I've heard you do recently. Um, but are you surprised to the degree that you're aware of it? of this uh, rise of integralism by folks like uh, Adrian Vermeule, who teaches at law at, at Harvard, or even you probably did follow some of the reception of Patrick Deneen's book on why liberalism failed. There's a, a rise among Catholic intellectuals of a kind of anti-liberal posi- posture on political theory or legal theory and it's um it's a, it's a striking development and intellectually it has a lot of features that are that are um, intriguing to pursue at the intellectual level but it's also striking because it seems like it these writers have forgotten about the accomplishments of american catholics and the way that they have assimilated and integrated in a way but Maybe there's a kind of nostalgia for an earlier posture of the church's relationship to politics and society. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Well, let me uh, let me begin with your man Buckley. Buckley was a um, Evelyn Waugh character. Um, he was like a, a, a recusant um, because he was landed Catholic gentry, but he went to, you know. Um, all the right uh, Ivy League schools. Um, he was not an integralist. Uh, religion was a private thing, and it hands off uh, what I'm saying. Uh, and he was a conservative um, and an anti-communist. Um, but but when it came to e- economics and so forth, he was a capitalist. I mean, a capitalism pusher. Okay. Um, his brother-in-law, Bozell, um, uh, I knew Bozell and Jacobs, which was the company, ah. family company, and they tried to hire me when I was, uh, before I went to Newsweek. Um, Bozell was a zealot in and off the wall. Um, <laughs> most of, of, of conservative Catholicism was anti-communism. Right. Uh, we made it into, the, the, the war was the great integrator, World War II. The war and um, the um, 50s economy. I'm a big fan of the 50s. It was so superior to the 60s, uh, as I say in my book. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping back. Um, I read Deneen's book. Um, I've met Deneen. I went to his lectures. I like his book. I'm a Tocquevillian myself. Um, I prefer the development of civil society. Um, these prince, Catholic principle of subsidiarity can we be read as a polit- uh, in a conservative way as well as a liberal way, um, and so um, the fact that they, um, uh, uh, but 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 when they 
don't write their academic, when, when they get away from their academic books and they get into real life, they're raving integralists, if you will. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to, to uh, do it. My reading of, of, um, of Newhouse would be, I think, different from yours. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there was some of that in them, but even there with the Catholic moment, he said the, uh, what liberal uh, mainline Protestantism provided in the way of, um, uh, class and the way of, 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 of a way of acting in public life, uh, a way of thinking about things had collapsed. And now Catholics with their long philosophical as well as theological tradition was going to step in. Um, it was in the service of, of, of the American Republic. It was not in the service of the, of the church. And, um, uh, <laughs> that's about the time that the, uh, abuse crisis hit. And that was the end of that. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that um, um, I can absorb a lot of the Patrick Deneen kind of thinking um, without then supporting Repu- uh, what passes for the, for Republican principles, you know, at this point. I'm not sure it's integralism. Um, I, I think what they want is integrity within the church. And I think that... Uh, um, uh, Oh, that great line that you, I think you have from um, uh, Murray Kempton about cafeteria Catholics and the, the, uh, being fed by short order chefs. Um, look, they didn't pass on the tradition well. They haven't recreated the Catholic imagination, which is more important than philosophy or theology. Mm-hmm. It's how you imagine the world and how you imagine grace operating in that world. Um, it imagines a Catholic imagination imagines that we don't get saved one by one. It's we, not me. Um, the alones, we're not Christ alone, et cetera, alone. So the relationship of religion <laughs> to culture, all of that sort of thing. Um, if they can't pass that on, if they can't do it at the Notre Dames and the, and the, and, and the Georgetowns, which I don't think they are there, um, then, um, the whole enterprise is indeed going to collapse. So that's my conservative side of, of what has to be said. The liberal side is it ain't just abortion. I'm as pro-life as I think you're ever going to find anybody. Um, but Bernardine was right. Um, and, and, and we have to live in a way where it's going to cost being, I would say, Catholic. But it's true of all Christians, I would think. And... Um, being American uh, is being part of an American culture that that doesn't support this sort of thing. And so I think whether you're Catholic or Protestant, um, whatever, you're going to have to distinguish your cause from the nation, not holy. All right. Which was something from the old liturgy. Um, mm. And 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 that's what's taking place. Right. And it pains me to see that liberals and conservatives can't agree on that. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really fitting way to end our conversation. Actually, it bears directly on uh, the, the themes of our uh, podcast. So Ken, thanks very much for taking time to uh, talk to us about this and um, look forward to seeing your work in the future and hearing your voice in other places. And since I'm in the Midwest, uh, I'll brag and hope to see you at some point. Our paths will cross again. So 
Well, my sister graduated from Hillsdale, so I have a connection with the place. Well, I get to Chicago every spring. I'm going to look you up. But, um, okay, by all means, uh, do it quickly. Who knows how long I'll be around. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Thank Appreciate it. Take care. So this is the extra time with <clears throat> with Crawford and uh, Daryl. Um, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yes, I I was particularly intrigued by um, the idea of growing up pre-Vatican II in the 40s and 50s and um, thinking that it was he just fit felt like he fit right in with America. I mean, I, because you, I, I get the sense sometimes that anti-Catholicism was so strong. And I, and I, you know, I think he makes a point too about demographics and class mm. that if you're in the suburbs and going to a Jesuit school, you may have a different experience from an Irish or Italian American in the city. Um, but still that was very intriguing. I, I would have liked to have get to, gotten to Notre Dame and Notre Dame football, which has now become sort of as American as the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL. But um, uh, anyway, that was one takeaway that I heard that was fascinating. Yeah, I was struck by his references to the Catholic imagination. And but right. at the end of the conversation, that's a very important point. But also the point he was making at the start of the conversation about pre-Vatican II Catholicism or Catholic identity or experience being much more geared around liturgy than doctrine or propositional truth claims of, 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 of any kind. Uh, and also, I was quite intrigued by the way in which Paul Blanchard's work was not was not on the scene, wasn't a part of that conversation. I mean, over right. here, in the 1950s, over here, Blanchard was, uh, I think, a reasonably big figure, big uh. enough big enough to be banned in Ireland. Um, and of course, he writes a book about. He comes across to Ireland, lives for a year, I think, in nineteen fifty-two or three, I think, um, and writes about his experience and and sees his experience of, as he puts it, I think, Irish Catholic theocracy as as something which he wants to warn American readers about. Huh. So, so it was interesting that that was just non non relevant to to to, to Ken's early experience, right. The, what you said, too, bringing up the imagination, I, I also found to be really intriguing, and um, <clears throat> I see it happening, actually, among some of my colleagues here at Hillsdale who who teach history or philosophy or literature, and I think th they have a capacity to talk about an imagination um, with students that I think is, is part of the appeal for Roman Catholicism at, at here at Hillsdale. Um, and and I, I'm still kind of processing that in a way. Uh, and I don't know how much that, how much traffic that has in the wider uh, discussions about politics, because actually I think a lot of the students who uh, do convert, and the faculty who may um, be heroes to those students aren't all that political, actually. Um, but contrast that with 
what we just heard about the invention of evangelicalism as a category. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. You, this is something, of course, you've written about deconstructing evangelicalism right. back in the day. But, you know, he, here you've got this, in, you know, in Ken's perception, very rich, complex, um, I, I suppose emotionally engaged, intellectually engaged, imaginative experience, which is, you know, totalizing and, and also totalizing of the community. Contrast that with the sort of vacuous, pollster-driven uh, category of evangelicalism that has to be invented in the 1950s to make sense of these different religious impulses, political impulses, cultural impulses that don't otherwise have anything very much in common. It's quite a striking contrast. It is. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, his perceptions of what we now call evangelicals today, his perceptions of those people in the 50s was what really quite striking because they weren't necessarily all that respectable and they weren't well connected and they weren't very well institutionalized, which points to, uh, and I will give the leaders of neo-evangelicalism like Billy Graham and, and those folks credit for actually trying to herd these cats and get them together into something and then it became maybe hijacked, maybe not, because I think the politics of those people was very similar to what the Republicans were offering in the late 70s and early 80s and even beyond. But it could be hijacked possibly because the institutional life was was weak and thin. And to contrast that with probably we didn't talk about it directly, although it seemed to come up maybe a couple times in Ken's comments, but the real other for for Roman Catholics in the in the fifties would have been the mainland Protestant churches. I mean, that's where you saw how to be Christian in, in public life um, beyond the Catholic world, and 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 that side of Protestantism is just collapsed. It's it's astounding to me. I try. I'm teaching religion in America right now, and I try to t tell students that once upon a time, mainline liberal Protestant denominations mattered. They were important parts of American life, and now it's hard even to find a new story about them. And I don't say – I mean, I say that with some delight given my own religious identity. And, and, but on the other side, I, I, I think it's really hurt uh, American life as well. I mean, I think liberal Protestants actually created a certain kind of ethos culture that was – that made America tick at a certain time. Cold War, maybe too much, but still. Yeah, it's one of the one of the funny things I think out of that Commonwealth piece that we've been talking about is this idea that um, <clears throat> actually American voters are generally not religious, uh, and a majority of mainline Protestant voters voted for Trump just as a majority of white evangelicals did, and yet no one's writing that story about the mainline Protestants. The funny thing is they shouldn't be writing that story about evangelicals either because, according to Ken's analysis, they just don't matter. Right, right. So not only, has, not, only does, not only does pollsterism invent the category, media narratives keep the category going. They, they keep reifying, they keep emphasising its importance, even though there's hardly any of these people. And, and people in our guild do the same. And, and maybe we're guilty. <laughs> yeah, oh. Well, I think we we both tried to be contrarian about some of that that narrative, um, but you know um, don't, we don't need to sort of highlight things for 
listeners <laughs> to, to notice. But, you know, the way Ken ended on all Christians need to <clears throat> identify more with the church than have their churches serve the nation was, in my estimation, brilliant. Um, I wish I heard more of that. Um, so, again, maybe, maybe that's a, <clears throat> a, the right place to sign off. But go ahead. You um, Do you – I mean, from your perspective in Northern Ireland and, and the experience of Protestant Roman Catholic struggles there, do you have any – I mean, did, did this conversation resonate with you in any particular way? Um, and, and, I, you know, I don't want you to just have to step into – anything that could get you um, in trouble. So you want to take the fifth, that's fine. Although you're not, you're not an American citizen, so it doesn't really apply to you. It doesn't count, does it? I think, I think for me, as, a, as I said about the Blanchard uh, material, I think there's obviously quite a striking disconnect between um, Irish Catholics in the 1950s and, and Irish American Catholics in the 1950s. They're, they're two different peoples. They've got different imaginative worlds. And maybe mm. that maybe that's one way of problematizing, if that's not too much of a cliche, what Ken says about the Catholic imagination, that actually it's always regional. Mm. And what it means to be an Irish Catholic in the nineteen fifties is quite different from the experience of being an Irish Catholic in America. Maybe we should ask Biden when we interview him. Right. Well, it and it fits with what I I don't know, this book James Chapel Chappell came out a year or two ago with Harvard called um, Catholic Modern. And it's, it's a study of um, Catholic intellectuals in Northern Europe primarily. And the, and the degree to which they had to sort themselves through both uh, fascism and communism in, in order to get to some kind of modern identity for themselves in the church. Again, that just bears upon your point that it's regional. Um, which is intriguing because so often the claims on behalf of Rome are made of a universal totalizing category, but, you know, they, they can always also appeal to subsidiarity and, and make that work conceivably. But um, maybe we should, I saw Pauline stick her head in behind you. I think it's the, I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, it's the notes. Good thing. This isn't, um, the video won't be recorded, so she won't be on. But we did we did refer to her if if this makes it into <laughs> under the podcast. So um, we should bring this to a close. Yeah, good to see you. See you later. You too. All right. Thanks, Crawford.